you don't understand. You've got me confused with someone who's not afraid of heights. <laughs> Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Take five. Uh, welcome back to the Exploring Washington State podcast. My guest today is Paula Boggs. Um, Paula is a musician, but with a very interesting uh, journey that we're going to talk about. Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. So Paula and I have a shared work history. We were both uh, worked at Starbucks uh, Coffee back uh, 20 years ago or so. Uh, not, not that we knew each other, but uh, we, we might've been in the same coffee room on the, on the, on one of the floors. Who knows? I mean, I always enjoyed working there cause I was always impressed. Like there's coffee everywhere. This is great. <laughs> um, everywhere. <laughs> Paula, what let's, let me, let's start this. You're, you're you know how the Paula Boggs band, but there's a, a long journey before we got to that point. So, how about sharing some of that with our audience so that we can kind of build the backstory to what you're doing today? Sure, Scott. And, you know, you'll you'll have to guide me on, you know, how far and how much you want. But uh, let's let's frame it this this way to to kick it off. I'm I'm someone who uh, who is very lucky and part of being very lucky is how it all started for me. I'm I'm the child of educators, uh, and uh, my family goes back uh, centuries uh, in this country. I think we uh, can record uh, as early as the late 1700s. Oh wow! Uh, as enslaved people here, okay. uh, and. From a very early age, and this is a theme that, you know, continues through my life to today, um, it was hard to put my experience in a box uh, because uh, even as a little kid, I was living, I was living in the segregated South as a black Roman Catholic. Okay, so. Catholics are a minority in the South, at least they were. Um, black Catholics were, and to this day, are a minority of African Americans. Uh, and so that's how, that was kind of the framing uh, of that for me as the child of educators. My, my dad was a biology professor at Virginia State, uh, which is an historically black college. And that was basically how I rolled. I, I attended the only integrated school in Petersburg, the Catholic school was the only integrated school. And that was kind of my, my vibe until my folks split up and that led to my mom taking me and her three other kids out of the segregated South to Europe. And so for me, from grades eight through 12, I lived in Germany and Italy. And those experiences 
really uh, imprinted deeply uh, the person I became. I returned to the United States, went to college, joined the army, became a lawyer. Uh, and, you know, over, over the, the, you know, the course of a generation, that was pretty much my gig, uh, until it wasn't, as you know, um, I left Starbucks, uh, about a decade ago. And, uh, since then, uh, I've been a creator, whether that, uh, is in, music or speaking or some other way touching uh the creative arts uh so that's the that's <laughs> you can you can you know move from there okay. as you wish but throughout all of that i think uh, it's important for your listeners to know uh music was either a a central player uh or it was you know in a latency period before it it reemerged, uh, but uh, I I believe it never left. Growing up, let's let's I'll ask this question. So pre Europe, was music prevalent in the household? It was. Um, it was there. It was present. Okay, but I'm not sure I would use the word prevalent. Uh, and and the reason I say that is there was music, you know, I remember Otis Redding and The Temptations and, you know, stuff like that. That's what I was hearing in my household. Okay. Uh, you know, not every day, but we had those records, uh, those LPs and 45s. Uh, I was attending both Catholic church and my mom wasn't Catholic. She was African Methodist Episcopal. So I had this diversity of um, church music experiences. Uh, you know, one, one Sunday I might be at the Catholic church and, you know, listening to, you know, the Kyrie and, 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 you know, the incense and the genuflections and, you know, was a kid as folk music emerged okay. uh, as an art form in the Catholic Church. But then the next week, I'd be at Oak Street AME Zion Church, where there was gospel. And so both of those influences, I believe, remain in, you know, the music I write to this day. How about when you moved to Europe, were you, how was your high school years of Europe? How was the music scene? Were you, did you, did you, were you listening to different stuff when you were in Europe? Were you exposed to things there that you, you know, that influenced you? Totally. I okay. mean, it was, it was, uh, almost night and day in some respects there there were forms of music i had never heard before that uh became you know part of my 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 music palette an example of that is jazz i had i had never really been exposed uh to jazz 
uh, before moving to Europe. But my mom was a teacher in the Department of Defense school system. So, so the children she taught were the children of military personnel and, and, and civilians stationed there. Um, and with that community, we came to know those communities, we came to know expat American musicians. And, okay. and, and for the most part, they were either jazz musicians or classical musicians. And so for the first time in my life, I was actually hanging out with jazz musicians and classical music musicians. I had heard some, uh, you know, Baroque classical music in the Catholic Church, but the diversity of classical music I was exposed to in Europe was, um, was something quite magnificent uh, for me. And, you know, we were, during that five-year period, I was a teen in Europe. Not only were we in Germany, and and in Germany in, in the 70s, there was the emergence of what we now know as EDM mm-hmm. music. So you had, you know, these bands like Kraftwerk who, you know, were emerging in Germany uh, mm-hmm. back then when I was a teen. And so, you know, so that music, you know, there was no exposure to music like that for me when I lived in, you know, segregated Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, and um, oh, and then we moved to Italy. And, okay. and so there was, you know, opera and, and, and whatnot that was certainly not part of my experience before we got uh, to Europe. So yes, um, in addition to being exposed to, you know, a diversity of people, I mean, I, I had my first, you know, sleepovers with white girls uh, in yeah. Europe. I was being exposed to just this amazing palette of diverse music. Then you, you came back to the States for college. Where, where did you go to college at? Uh, I went I went to Johns Hopkins University on on a an ROTC scholarship. So that's the only way I would have been able to afford Johns Hopkins, and it it was. Now I know this. It was absolutely the best place for someone like me, and the reason for that is. Hopkins prides itself on uh, on exploration. Okay. And whether that's scientific exploration or, you know, anything else. Meaning, if you could sell it, they'd give you credit for it. <laughs> and for someone <laughs> like me, that was perfect because that's what I've been doing my entire life. <laughs> Okay. From so from there you went. In how many years were you in the army? All told, I was I was in the army for seven years, but three of those were while I was in law school. So, so four years active duty army. Okay. I'm on your I'm on your website and I'm reading your 
your bio here. And there's, so I have two questions about your military career that you can help me out with here. Sure. Um, regular officer in the United States army earned army airborne wings. Does that mean you jumped out of airplanes as a lawyer? Yes, it does. Did you, did you like carry a briefcase when you jumped out or, I mean, what, <laughs> what, why explain this to me? Because I'm not, a, I didn't grow up in a military family nor. So if you were going to law school to be a, an attorney, what was the, why were you jumping out of airplanes? I mean, I'd ask anybody that question. Why are you jumping out of an airplane? Seems like a crazy yeah. thing to, period, well, no matter I'm, what you're I'm, doing. But what, what's, why were you, re, was that optional? Did you want to, was it required? It's, it's actually a, a, a really cool story in, in many respects. I went to airborne school while still an, an army ROTC cadet. So I was not yet a commissioned officer. I was still in college. And so what I tell people is I was, I was a very serious student at Hopkins, but I wasn't a very serious cadet. (laughs) Okay. Uh, okay. I mean, I was a scholarship there, but it was sort of like for those who remember Gomer Pyle, it was sort of, uh, you know, an African-American female version of Gomer Pyle. Uh, Yeah. So, so one day my, my professor of military science, he is just so exasperate berated with me because I am just not serious. He he literally takes me by my shoulders and he's shaking me and he says, you are not serious. <laughs> he says, you need, you're about to enter this man's army. That's how he put it. Mm-hmm. This man, And you need an edge. You need to go to airborne school. And Literally, Scott, I went, whoa, no, sir, you don't understand. You've got me confused with someone who's not afraid of heights. (laughs) And he said, no, you, I'm talking to you Uh, and you can you can do this. And I was like, sir, I can't do this. And he said, yes, you can. He said, here's all you have to do. They're going to yell at you. They're going to scream at you. They're going to make you do a ton of push-ups. They're going to make you feel awful. But just remember, it's all designed so that when they say jump, you will jump and you will land safely. Now, I don't, I'm not going to say I believed him right out (laughs) of the block, Scott, because I, I didn't. But there was something about him having faith in me in a way I I clearly did not have in myself that led me to say yes. And, you know, and he he worked with me. He said, look, you're an athlete. Uh, And I was. I I ran cross country and and track at at Hopkins. So I, I was in shape. And he was right. I would I learned how to get my mind in a place where I could navigate fear and, and get to the other side of it. Now I'm still afraid of heights. I'm still afraid of heights, but I also earned 
my airborne wings. And, and what that taught me, uh, you know, whether it's leaving Starbucks uh, to become a musician um, or something else that, you know, fear, fear can be healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, fear can protect you, but fear can also cripple you uh, if you let it. And so it gave me um, a, a, a tool set, if you will, going to airborne school that has served me well ever since. Because, you know, as life comes to any of us, you know, there's hard stuff. And there's stuff that can make any of us fearful. I'm not immune to that. But because I had that experience as as a young person, um, and it was so imprinting uh, for me, it has served as a guidepost for me. The other part of this military thing says... And a congressional appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy, among America's first women to do so. What is a congressional appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy? Yeah, did you attend so Annapolis? I ended up not going. I ended up going to to Hopkins and taking my Army ROTC scholarship instead. Okay, but um, you know, setting the stage a little bit for your listeners, the the military academies were barred to women. Women were not allowed to attend uh, the academies uh, until 1976. And so I was in high school when that happened, and I was living on a military installation, right, in Europe. So for a lot of kids, I mean, mostly the guys, but if you were you know, if you had good grades and you were an athlete, it was almost expected that you were going to oh. at least apply to okay. one of the military academies. That was, you know, our environment. So when the academies opened their doors to women, there were those of us who were, you know, were athletes and had good grades. And that became open to us as well. Now, to get into the any of the academies, whether it's Annapolis or West Point or the Air Force Academy, doesn't matter, Coast Guard Academy, you you have to you can only be accepted. You can can only be in the pool of people who can potentially be accepted if you've got uh, a recommendation from the President of the United States, from a US Senator, um, or from a member of Congress, you must have um, okay. a recommendation uh, to even be put in the pool. Okay. So I'm in Europe. I told you I lived in the segregated South, and that's the, this is the best part of this story. So my congressman from Virginia, which was the last place <laughs> we lived, was an avowed segregationist, okay? (laughs) This dude did not believe in the equality of black people and white people. He just did not, okay? And was a proponent of a system that 
kept blacks and whites apart. But he had no clue who I was. I was oh. this kid in Europe. Okay. And so the most beautiful part of my congressional appointment is that <laughs> I received it from an avowed segregationist. That's that's beautiful, actually. <laughs> that's okay. Wow. Then you went to Berkeley for law school? Yes. Which um, <laughs> the best the the best part of that, Scott, was not so much the law school part of it. The best part of the next step in my life journey being Berkeley mm-hmm. was Berkeley. You know, so I because have to ask, I, it was I have just. To, I got, I'm going to interrupt you. I got to ask this question. Yes. So you went to Berkeley. Yes. Did you ever go see the Grateful Dead? I've seen the Grateful Dead, but not in Berkeley. Okay. I, I saw I, the Grateful Dead in Portland, Maine. Oh, that, okay. <laughs> sorry, I had to interrupt because I'm like thinking. Yeah, anyway. All right, sorry to interrupt you. So, <laughs> so you, you, you grew up in segregation you went to europe you went to johns hopkins and then you end up in berkeley you you've you're really that's quite the diverse uh path location wise yeah it it is and you know it it informs who i am i want to talk you music so we're going to cut short your your career and I'm not doing you justice, but I'm, I, you help me out. What, the, what, how do I want to ask this is, I warned, I warned you this not scripted. So, but you, you have served on a number of boards. You've, you've done a number of, um, appointments. There's a photograph here with you and a president Barack Obama. Um, Fender Music, I'm just scrolling here. KEXP, you were at Dell, Dell Computers. I'm leaving out far more than I'm covering by, and you, and and, and I'm just in the. I, I'm going to give you a, a critique. The font is awfully small on your website. Um, it's hard to read all these things. It's so dense, and I'm kidding. But it's wow. Uh, there is so much going on here. Let's go back to Starbucks. You were the chief counsel for the corporation. You were there for 10 years. I and, sure was. And I think we were discussing this part of it before we actually recorded. Starbucks grew a lot during those 10 years and uh, it, uh, spread out across the globe, if you will. And, and you were overseeing the, the legal teams and all that. Somehow, somewhere, there's this, uh, you, you mentioned how you're going to tell Howard Schultz that you're, Thank you, and I, I appreciate my time here, but I'm going to go and play music. That's right. So how was that conversation? <laughs> I mean, you because know, I got it, to imagine that's a pretty <laughs> uh, pretty unique um, way to resign from a, from a very prominent corporate position. How did, how did Mr. Schultz take this? 
You know, it, it's it's a beautiful story, Scott, because okay. being at Starbucks, and I think having, you know, worked there yourself, um, what I'm about to say may resonate with you. I don't even know if I I would have returned to music uh, working at another company. I think there's a a direct connection between, I mean, being at Starbucks wasn't the the primary trigger that that brought me back to music, but I think being in that Petri dish, being in a community of people who, for so many of them, Starbucks was the one corporation they could work for. Uh, there's a, you know, an overwhelming number of people who are creative people who find their way to Starbucks, uh, in our, in in the stores, all the way up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as I was returning to music inch by inch in say that 2005, 2006, time frame i had a lot of support for that journey you know my my team was kind of rooting for me as were my peers and um howard's predecessor jim donald was just a big fan he was he was a big fan of of me exploring that side of me, you know? And so by the time Howard came back as CEO, you know, you know, this train was moving, uh, you know, and I, uh, and so he, he had, um, you know, he bore witness to all of this. So, you know, it wasn't this lightning bolt out of the blue in, in that sense. Having said that though, I rehearsed that conversation for several months with my spouse. Okay. She was playing Howard uh, because I knew (laughs) I only had one shot and, you know, it had to be good. Um, And it had to be a message that made it clear what it was. It had nothing to do with Starbucks it had nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to convey that somehow, that this was all about me. Uh, you know, not only was I going to leave Starbucks, I was going to leave law. It wasn't like I was leaving Starbucks to go someplace else right. Uh, right. in corporate America. I wasn't. This was okay. it. You know, Starbucks was going to be the pinnacle of that chapter. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I told him. Uh, I told him that, you know, I, I felt blessed to have had law and business be such a central part of my being for these many years, but I was done. And while I was still young enough to do this thing 
I was going to do this thing. And he took it really well. And I think part of it is we were having this conversation only a couple months after Steve Jobs died. You know, and so I think, you know, Steve Jobs dying and I think Howard saw Steve Jobs as a peer. They were around Mm -hmm. the same age and Mm -hmm. all of that. So this this notion of none of us knows how much time we have on this earth. We need to spend it the way we need to spend it. Mm -hmm. I think that was a message he was very ready to receive uh, because of because of all of that. So, yeah, it was a good conversation. And uh, the, the company celebrated my my ending of that chapter at its uh, at its 2012 annual meeting. It was a really cool thing. I'm glad to hear that it was well received. And I, and I believed, believe it would be well received. I mean, yeah. I, I believe, but it's not like your position was easily filled. In other words, it's not like, or, Hey, can somebody take my shift on Friday and make coffee? You know, it wasn't, it's, it's a little more complex than that. So we're going to just, you know, grind the gears because we're going to shift away. Now that was kind of your, your corporate chapters. Yes. And let's talk, Paula Boggs band. But before we start that, you said something and I got to go back to it. You saw the Grateful Dead in Portland, Maine. I yeah. have never talked to somebody that saw the, the dead in Portland, Maine. How was that? It was, it was amazing. So, you, you know, I got to explain a little bit how I got to Portland, Maine. So, okay. I was in Berkeley. Yeah. You know, I was a law student at Berkeley and, you know, apropos of, you know, sort of how I'm wired. I, I I learned about this internship possibility in Portland, Maine, while I was in Berkeley, California. And so I applied for it because, you know, the theory being, when else am I going to live in Portland, Maine? <laughs> or or in New England, for that matter. Right. And right. so I moved, you know, first for a semester, I moved, you know, 3,000 miles from Berkeley, California, uh, to Portland, Maine. Uh, and then after I graduated from law school, before I started work, I, I spent part of my summer that next summer in Portland. And I, I saw the Grateful Dead. It was <laughs> an experience I will never forget. I've never seen so much tie-dye in my life, <laughs> Scott. <laughs> Uh, and as you might imagine, there was there was ample weed. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yes, that's yeah. ample weed. I also saw Neil Young in, oh. in Portland. Those were the two, you know, iconic okay. music yeah. acts I saw in Portland, Maine. And the the most interesting thing about Neil Young, at least for me, was Neil Young was playing this sort of north of crazy horse kind of you know super electronic stuff and right. the crowd started booing 
Okay. I mean, you know, sort of like a la Bob Dylan pulling out of the guitar thing at Newport. And Neil Young leaves the stage. He literally left the stage and there's, it's like, is he coming back? Is he, you know, what's, what's going on? So he comes back out after, I don't know, 15 minutes. It was a while. And mm-hmm. the first song he plays is um, Comes a Time. Oh. As another one, yeah. in the words, get over yourselves. <laughs> you know, right. I'm going to play what I want to play. Wow. <laughs> at the, at, is that the only time you saw the Grateful Dead was in Portland? That's the only time. So I did you, did you experience them. the parking lot scene at a dead show? Did you, did, well, you, you know, I don't know if if what you're referring to is what I saw, but the only thing I can compare it to, my sister was a cheerleader for okay. Notre Dame. Okay. <laughs> and I went to a football game, and they have these what they call subway domers. People come from all over the place, some of them never having attended uh, <laughs> Notre Dame, and they have like these tailgate things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like a cultural event, yeah. right? Right. And it felt similarly. I mean, that's the only well, other thing I can, only with more tie-dye and more weed. <laughs> more, more tie-dye and more weed. I just, I just remember, um, I've seen the Grateful Dead a lot, but the parking lot, you know, it, what's always amazed me is the entrepreneurial endeavors that people would, take to stay unemployed and follow the dead like selling burritos heated on the manifolds of their volkswagen buses and and any manner of you know you could buy tie-dye any manner of tie-dye or any manner of all sorts of things it was just the circus outside of the show that was in some ways more entertaining than the show it was just the creativity people exhibited um was was fascinating to me so maybe someday there'll be, you know, uh, parking lot shows for your, your, your band. I, I don't know. <laughs> we, we can, we, you know, we can only aspire, right. You know, dream big, right. <laughs> there you go. So when you left Starbucks, how did, so how did your band come about? Let, let's talk the, 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 or the origin story of, of the band. How, how did you meet some of the players and, and wh- how did you execute that initial vision? Yeah, so I I came back to music, or at least I I I think of it as my return to music um, happened in two thousand five, in the wake of my sister in law being killed in a car crash, and my spouse persuading me to pick up my guitar again as a way to grieve. With within a short period of time, I was I I learned about and my my spouse persuaded me to do it. Um, I took a course, a one year songwriter certificate course through the University of Washington's uh, evening program a continuing education program. And I loved it. You know, I auditioned for it. 
it was a year. I was in a community of songwriters for the first time in my life, really. At the end of that, so we're in 2006 by then, one of my teachers, we had a recital, and at the end of it, she says, you know, Paula, I think I really think you've got something here with your songwriting, and what a shame it would be if you didn't keep going. Now, I didn't know what keep going meant. I, I had no clue what that meant. I, you know, I'm Starbucks general counsel, top lawyer. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working insane hours, et cetera, et cetera. But I decided uh, that it could mean, and what I made it mean was at the beginning of 07, I did one open mic a month. Okay. And yeah, and I said, I, I can do that. I can do one okay. o- open mic a month which I did. And on that journey, I met two musicians who continue to be part of Paula Bikes band, Tor Diedrichson. I actually met through MySpace when it was a thing, realizing <laughs> he was a Seattle musician. He's a percussionist and he's amazing. So we've been playing, you know, for 14, 15 years together. And, um, and then Mark Shannon, I, I actually, who who plays guitar and and banjo in the band, we actually met in Honolulu. We were both there, but we're both from Seattle. And so, (laughs) and so, you know, Tor and Mark and I and a couple other guys, you know, became Paula Paula Boggs band. We had our first gig at, um, the Triple Door Musicquarium in January of 08. And the only reason they gave us a shot was because of Tor. Tor Diedrichson plays with a number of bands and was a known quantity to okay. the Triple Door. And so he vouched for us and, and basically said, you know, these guys are good. I play with them. Give them a shot. And that's how okay. we got it. It was no more, you know, complicated than than that. They like tour. That's why we got the shot. Okay. They like tour. And that's how it all began. And, you know, by uh, the next year, we were um, we were recording a, a first album, uh, which we uh, released. And where did you record? Where did you record your first album at? We um we met a guy. I met a guy um, through actually my spouse found him on Craigslist uh, named Matthew Brown, who turned out to be just perfect for us because Matt is is so good and and I mean he he has a point of view, but he's also laid back, right? Uh, okay. And approaches recording in in a sort of a partnership mindset which worked really well for us uh and you know he was he never there was never a moment where he was telling us scott well that's stupid i mean here's you know (laughs) i'm someone who i mean i've never done this before you know this is the first time and i really uh you know appreciate that uh about (laughs) about Matt. And so, yeah, he, he produced it, he engineered it. And, you know, because of that, we were off to 
the races with, you know, our first album, uh, Buddha State of Mind. All right. And how, so did you self-publish that? Was that, or was that on a label or did you self, did you self-publish it? Um, I self-published it and, okay. you know, we've, we've never, you know, we've never had label uh, support for any of our albums. And, you know, it's something we, we certainly aspire to though, you know, the whole landscape for music in 2022 is very different than in 2010. I think, you know, there are many musicians out there who are less, you know, are less needy for mm-hmm. label uh, support. And, you know, one of the one of the upsides to one of the creative upsides to not having label support, if you can do it, is maintaining ownership of your music. Well, and when you think about how far the advances in technology also for like recording purposes, uh, your, your, your phone, I'm going to, I'm going to make a guess that you have an iPhone. Just, I do. A, just a, yeah, just a guess. Yeah. And on your iPhone, you know, GarageBand is a remarkably powerful little thing that sits there in your, t- on your phone. I mean, absolutely. 20 years ago, if I would have suggested that to somebody, they'd have looked at me like I was from outer space and, and now are these these devices that we have are just remarkably powerful for a creative person, no matter whether you're a musician, a photographer, any anything. They're they're amazing devices. So you released the first album. Mm-hmm. We're gonna shift this up. I'm gonna ask you some so some questions I love to ask musicians. Yeah. As a performer, Washington State only plays because we are the Exploring Washington State podcast. Yeah. Your favorite venue that you performed at as a performer has been what? Oh my God. It it has to be the triple door main stage. Okay. And we okay. were just there last week. It So why why do you say the triple door? The the setting is is intimate. So, you know, I think the triple door's capacity I mean, it may be 250, but it may be less. You know, it's somewhere in right. that 200 to 250. So okay. it there there's an intimacy about that venue that is is furthered by, you know, people can opt to eat there, right? Mm-hmm. And it's configured mm-hmm. in this almost dinner club style. Uh that that I think further fuels the intimacy of that place. Coupled with that, the acoustics are off the chart. I mean, just the most amazing acoustics in the triple door. Coupled with that, the lighting is amazing. In fact, we had a... Um, we hired a photographer to shoot our show. And when we told her it was the triple door, she was like, Oh, I love that place as a photographer. It's, yeah. it's just an amazing venue for a photographer because the lighting is just off the hook. Okay. 
Okay. And then I guess the last thing, I mean, the stage is great. I mean, everything is great. The, the, how they treat musicians, the green room in the back, they, they feed their musicians before the show. I mean, they, it, and the food is amazing. Uh, you know, and then, and then finally the people are just nice. We've never, we've never met a jerk at the triple door. They, they just, you know, the, the wait staff, the, the audio guy or gal, I mean, everybody's just nice. They're very professional. They're very Mm -hmm. nice. So yeah, the triple door main stage. Flip the question around now, your favorite place to see music performed at when you're in the audience. Well, I think it's the triple door. Well, it, it's a toss up. It's, it's, you know, we, we're not a jazz band, so we, we don't play there, but as a, as a um, listener, I love Jazz Alley Okay. Uh, for many of the same reasons. Right. Um, I also love um Benaroya Hall and um Macaw and have seen some amazing non-classical music performances. I you know I've seen classical music performances in, in each place, but I've seen amazing non-classical music right. performances. For example, I'm seeing Eddie Vedder at Benaroya Hall tonight, and I know oh. it's going to be amazing, acoustically excellent. Uh, it's it's just an amazing venue. If 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 your if your schedules got conflict, I'd be happy to drive over from Wenatchee and take those tickets off your hand and go, <laughs> go to the show for each night. Just just it's gonna, that out it's there. Gonna be it's trying epic. to be helpful. Trying to be helpful. Just <laughs> it's gonna be, be epic. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful venue. All right. So your first show is at the Triple Door. I mean, I, it, honestly, I don't know where to go from that. That one, you've, you've stumped me. That's that's a pretty pretty impressive place to play the first show. So you released your first album. Yes. You you have a second album released. So let's talk about that process. Yeah. So um, it wasn't it it wasn't a straight line. Oh. Okay. To be perfectly honest about it, so. You know, we re- released Buddha State of Mind, our first album, in 2010. And by 2013, we had enough material, you know, for a second album. And we we tried our hand at, you know, recording it. But it just wasn't right, Scott. It didn't hang. We, you know, it just, uh-huh. it was we weren't clear enough about what this music should be. And, and so we essentially started again in 2014 with a different producer. Uh, And this time we, um, we worked with Trina Shoemaker who, who lives uh, in Mobile or outside of Mobile, Alabama, but who's uh, worked with a number of Northwest artists. And so 
And she was very familiar with Bear Creek, which was where we wanted to record. So Trina actually came up. She had worked with Brandy Carlisle and others in the Pacific Northwest. She knew she knew the uh, the studio Bear Creek really well. We wanted to be at Bear Creek because we wanted that vibe. We wanted that. We thought that being you know in that farm like. (laughs) setting that barn like setting would be really good for the music we hoped to create uh, and, and to work with Trina. And so we did. uh, And that ended up being uh, carnival of miracles, our second album. We released it in 2015 and then we uh, came back with Trina a couple, uh, a year after releasing it in 2016. Uh, and, and with Trina, we recorded our third studio album, um, Elixir, the Soulgrass Sessions. And that was, we, we, you know, we wrote on that for, for a couple years, you know, the pandemic <laughs> intervened, uh, oh. but it didn't, it didn't frustrate my ability to write. In fact, okay. in some ways it fueled it. And so okay. the songs on this latest album, Janice, were all either written um, or reimagined uh, during during COVID. Okay. So the new album, well, actually, before we go there. So I was, like I told you before, I was listening to some of your music um, today before we hopped on this. And I'm not sure how I, I have to look at my phone while I do this. So I got to make sure I get the right thing here. And my phone is on. Okay. So explain to me. (sighs) Goo goo dolls. I'll be honest with you. I stumbled I'm, across that I'm on Facebook. Happy to. I'm, I'm and happy I thought, to I'm explain. like, are they covering Goo Goo Dolls? That just. <laughs> and so I listened to the song. I'm like, no, not covering the Goo Goo Dolls. There's got to be a story here. There is a story. So okay, I was I was surfing YouTube uh, as as I do from time to time, and I I came upon this video of the Goo Goo Dolls doing, you know, their, their, perhaps their most famous song, Iris. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, I, I, my response was, was sort of, um, come on because (laughs) it, it, it was, you know, you have Johnny Resnick and he's kind of like looking, you know, looking or trying to look sexy. And he's like, the wind is blowing through his hair and the, you've got the, you know, the, the acoustic guitar and then, you know, then this crescendo thing and, you know, yada, yada. And then I, I looked at a couple other of their songs and it was kind of the same formula okay you know so you know it would start with you know 
Johnny and the acoustic guitar and him looking sexy and the wind blowing in his hair and, you know, and then, you know, the swelling of the drums and, and I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. Right. You know, so, so I wrote, (laughs) I wrote Goo Goo Dolls as a, as a tongue in cheek uh, response to that Mm -hmm. experience. (laughs) And the version, <laughs> I'm glad I asked that. The version I listened to was a, uh, live from the Spanish ballroom there. Yes. So how, so how did you enjoy playing the Spanish ballroom? We really like this, the Spanish ballroom, you know, the challenge and, you know, it, a, a lot of musicians are, are facing this challenge in the era of COVID is, <laughs> you know, you, first of all, you've got to, you got to get a venue that's open, right? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, is, you know, reopened for business. And then you've got to kind of persuade fans to show up, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people uh, are not there. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they, they're fearful. And, and so, you know, we talked to the Spanish ballroom about this and they said, you know, your experience is not unique. A lot of bands have been facing the same thing, but we, you know, we didn't have a lot of people in the house. I mean, it was, it was not that well attended, but Mm -hmm. our ace in the hole for the Spanish ballroom show was it too has, not only does it have great lighting, but it has great acoustics Mm -hmm. and the sound engineer that night they they'd hired was outstanding he was totally outstanding and so when we heard and we you know we didn't know that was going to be the case but we had asked him to record our mm-hmm. our show and when we heard even his rough mix of it we're like oh my god we we performed the show really well. And, you know, there's some there's some opportunity here for, you know, a live single or two. Mm-hmm. So I'm really grateful we got that that gig because we didn't make a lot of money. There weren't a lot of people there. But the people who were there loved the show. And we were able to feed off that. I mean, you can feel it in the music that we're feeding off a crowd, even though it's a small crowd. Uh, you know, there's there's engagement there. There's energy there, which, right. you know, is a hallmark of the best shows, no matter if there's one person in in the audience or, or you know, a thousand. thousand plus. You know, you're just, right. feel, you know, when you feel it, you feel it. And we were feeling it that night. Uh, and the the recording engineer was first rate. And so that's how all that came together. We've, we've had this one guy, uh, Nick Denke, who has mixed live performances for us for over a decade. And when he Mm -hmm. heard that Spanish ballroom mix, he said, Paula, first of all, the band has never sounded better. And two, this drummer you have and this bass player you have, they're the best you've ever had for 
Paula Boggs band. He said, it makes my job so much easier. So, you know, we're just so fortunate to have Jake Evans on, on drums and Alex Deering on bass. They're both second generation professional musicians. Jake's dad, the drummer, Jake Evans, his dad played for Ray Charles and uh, Alex Deering, our bass player's dad, Wes, is a violist for the Seattle Symphony. All right. Spanish Ballroom's a cool little, cool little space. It is. You have a new album coming out. At the time of recording this, the album's not released. That's so right. Depending on when, when people listen to it, it may already be out. So this might be old news, but it's not old news today. Tell us about the album. Give me, give me, where did the inspiration from the songs come from? How was the recording experience? Let's, let's talk about all that, the back behind the yeah, album stuff so first. I suspect like a lot of people, COVID forced me to slow down and really uh, was an engine to lead me to a lot of introspection, uh, reflection, self-reflection, community reflection, um, thinking about where I've been, where where I hope to go, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And at the end of the day, Janice, which is named for, you know, the god or goddess of transitions, doors opening, closing, so chapters, ending. Not- not Janice Joplin. <laughs> J A N U S. I know. <laughs> uh, but you know, it can it can, you know, I I can I I happily accept Janice Joplin <laughs> as a muse. Um that's where that's where my headspace was in okay. in writing uh this music. And so the album is really um the the its themes cover uh, ancestry, um, episodes of a past life. Um, there, there are songs that touch upon a hopeful future, uh, and you know it. It is likely the most personal and emotional album uh but it's not all sad stuff i mean there are some some really uh you know tongue-in-cheek kind of in the in the realm of goo goo dolls uh (laughs) songs on this album too uh there's one called where's my scarf which is our uh soul grass americana take on covid (laughs) And the life we've had to lead, uh, okay, in 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 these times, uh, but, um, but that's that's sort of the the impetus to it, and you know, some of these, a couple of the songs touch upon, um, in fact, three of them touch upon uh, childhood moments. Uh, the the opening song is called Ponies. And it it's one of those tongue in cheek songs uh, in this in the sense that 
when I was a kid, before we moved to Europe, my my parents bought these. Well, actually, they bought. They thought they were buying one pony. They didn't realize the pony was pregnant, uh, and, oh, no. and before we knew it, we had two ponies. They had nothing. They they knew nothing about. And so the the uh, the song, I mean, the, the the opening chorus is "Why we got these ponies, Ma? Why we got these ponies? <laughs> we don't know a damn thing about them. Why we got these ponies, right?" Um, it, a, another song, you know, touches upon it's, it's, it's wistful and thinking back on child, uh, uh, not childhood per se, but high school and, you know, a friend I knew in high school and then had lost touch, uh, with, and, you know, so there's songs like that, um, on it. One song is the true story of, my ancestor, King Brewster, uh, we collaborated with Dom Flemons, uh, formerly of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and he's won a couple Grammys. It, we're so honored. Uh, he, uh, the, the, the song spoke to him, and he uh, wanted to be part of it. Um, but there are, you know, there are themes of love uh, on it, uh, and it, you know, I think apropos for what this album is the the last song on it is is also kind of tongue-in-cheek and it's it's called don't let the clowns break you down (laughs) and there are a lot of clowns scott (laughs) yes yes there are yes yes there are okay when will this album be released well um king brewster has already the single king brewster is uh is already released and people can find that on you know apple music spotify you know anywhere youtube uh this friday so you know i i don't know when you will release but on on february uh 25th i believe um our second single from this album is releasing motel six serenade uh and we will have a third single release in late March, likely Ponies, uh, before okay. the album itself releases on April 1. Okay. And it looks like you're going out on the road. Yes. You found some venues where you can play in front of people. Absolutely. Uh, what? Uh, why don't we talk about that for a second? It looks like you're starting... We've got a show later this week. Unfortunately, you know, there's the lag time of when we talk, but you have a show on February 23rd. That's right. Just to remind you that you have to be performing that night. But then in March, you're starting off in um, California. We sure are. And we have not been in the Bay Area, played any shows in the Bay Area since fall of 2019. And we've always had such wonderful, meaningful enthusiastic shows in the Bay area. And so it, it is, um, it is quite wonderful for us that, you know, this, the the first tour for this band uh, since COVID became a thing will be returning to the Bay area. We have three shows in mid March, uh, Sweetwater Music Hall, which, speaking of the Grateful Dead, a, a number of the 
Dead Bob Weir and others have been involved in, mm-hmm. you know, Sweetwater Music Hall. So it's got great bones and right. hopefully, you know, we will, you know, feel it and, and channel uh, some of that when we perform. Uh, we're going to uh, return to Redwood City in Silicon Valley. And also mm-hmm. uh, we're also going to Santa Cruz. And this will be the first time we've we've played Santa Cruz. So. Very okay. excited about that. I'm scrolling here like this, you know, nobody, nobody can know this, but you, because you know, you're, you're looking at me. Why is he looking down? So I'm looking <laughs> at my iPad in front of me here. <laughs> and what I'm noticing is a theme of coffee shops though. You play a lot of coffee shops and which I applaud you for because, well, the byline here on your website is Seattle brewed soul grass. Yes. We're going to go in two directions with that. How, how did that tagline come to be? Yeah. So, you know, in, you know, the early years of the band, there was, I had a, a desire to pay homage some way to Starbucks without saying Starbucks. And so, (laughs) so I I figured, you know, Seattle, Seattle brood was a good way to accomplish that goal. And then Soulgrass was, um, it's interesting. I was using a lot of words to try to describe what we were doing because none of the genres one typically hears about really fit what we were doing. You know, it, it's not really jazz. It's not really folk. It it it's influenced by those things. It, it's certainly, you know, we're using bluegrass instruments, et cetera, et cetera. One day, I was I was literally on a a shuttle bus at an airport and struck up this conversation with a woman, and I, you know, she was like, "Well, how do you describe your music?" And I was using all these words, and you know, and she said. That sounds like soul grass. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, are you in marketing? And she, I'm taking that. <laughs> she said, yeah, <laughs> that's what I do for a living. And oh gosh, okay. uh, I just ran with it. I said, okay, okay, that's, that's what we, that is better than any descriptor I've, okay. I've ever, you know, tried to frame this music in. Uh, and right. so we've been soul grass ever since. I have, I have a couple of questions. I want to respect your time. Actually, I have three questions. Okay. So question number one is the question I must ask all my guests. Where's a great place around you to get coffee? <laughs> well, you know, Scott, of course, you know, there, there are many Come on. Uh, Starbucks Come on, <laughs> near where I live, but, um, I, you know, I have come to in my post Starbucks years I've come to really love Pete's and there's a Pete's not that far uh, from where I live and it it's okay. all it also has a you know sort of neighborhood communal feel uh to it that mm-hmm. you know I really I really enjoy so when you go to your local Pete's what are you typically ordering oh I I'm I'm typically a drip person. So, you know, okay. I'm I'm not ordering, you know, the Pete's version of a cappuccino of a, you know, a 
you know, Frappuccino or whatever. I, that's, that's just not me. I, I, I love their French press and that, you know, I tend to, uh, I gravitate toward the, you know, the darker beans, um, you know, coming, you know, coming from, you know, Indonesia or Africa, uh, those, those tend to resonate more with me. So I'm going to ask before we hit record, and I asked you if you drank coffee and you, you said, yes, I'm drinking. And you said something I've never heard anybody say before. You said you were drinking a blend of pizza and Starbucks. Yeah. So what's in your cup right yeah. right now? Yeah. What, what is, yeah, so, what is this blend? Yeah. So, so here, here, here's the thing. The, um, the whole bean that I, I ground mm-hmm. is, um, is Starbucks, uh, Starbucks French roast. Okay. But then I add grounded Pete's, uh, Major Dick and Dickerson. So, so the ultimate result is a blend of, of Starbucks and Pete's. So approximately what's the ratio here? Is it one to one or? You know, it's, it's pretty 50, 50 actually. So how did you, how did you come up with this? I'm, I'm actually, this is, I have never talked to anybody who's acknowledged blending coffees. I, this is cool. Yeah, so, yeah. Cause I like both. I like Starbucks French and I like, I like the major Dickinson blend. Yeah. So what is, where was the inspiration for this? Was it ponies? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it must be ponies, right? <laughs> I don't know. But what, in all seriousness, how, what inspired you to take these, these, this coffee and create your own, your own blend, if well, you will? Well, you know, how does the saying go, you know, need is the mother of invention or something like that? Yeah. Uh, right. You know, and to be perfectly honest, I, I'm pretty sure it arose from me being low on something and saying, okay, what, what, what's, what's, what's around, right? You know, right, and, you right. Know, and so I'm putting this stuff together and then the, the end result was something I really enjoyed, right? <laughs> you know, and so I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, this is, this right. is my new coffee jam, this is, right? <laughs> I'm kind of liking this, to be honest with you. I think I'm going to, I'm going to experiment with that. That's, that's, I like that. And I'm with you. So it's not often every now and then it, what's left in the, in the grinder, if I've overground something, but it's the end of the bag. And then I'm like taking the next thing. I'm like, well, I hope this works. Um, <laughs> I haven't had s- success very often, uh, unfortunately, but, uh, cause I try, I try a lot of, uh, I, 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 every time I go to a coffee shop that has their own coffee, I'm buying something from them. So yeah. I've got, you know, um, stuff from independent little roasters across the state and there's some amazing coffee in Washington state. Yes, there is. The other question I didn't ask you, and I asked you where, where your favorite place to perform and to see music is, and I'll, and I'll let you, no, I'm going to make you stay Washington. (laughs) Where would you like to play that you haven't played? Mm, That's, that's a really great question. And, and here's, here's my answer. I would love, I would love, love, love to, to play at Fremont Abbey 
okay. upstairs. Okay. okay. And we've played in the basement of Fremont okay. Abbey, but there's something incredibly magical about the upstairs of Fremont right. Abbey. They, you know, they, they, they have the, you know, it's, it's a repurposed church and mm-hmm. there, there is something incredibly intimate uh, about that uh, performance space. It, it too has amazing acoustics and, I love what Fremont Abbey stands for. It, it it is, you know, a champion of great acoustic music, and it you know it's branched out um, such that their shows also take place at St. Mark's and um, a few uh, St. Mark's Cathedral and a few other places, but. But that upstairs space, and I don't—I don't think it holds more than, you know, two hundred people. You know, so I guess my my bottom line is, Scott. Yeah, it it would be cool to play it, and if you know, if we were ever invited to some of these huge festivals, of course, sure. that would be just amazing you know to play the gorge oh my god i mean sure. that would be you know right, just right. you know w- such a statement but if you're talking about an ideal venue for the listener to appreciate what we've done the musicianship mm-hmm. the lyricism the um really the ambiance of the music and for us to feel the audience, because that's one of the best things about this whole thing for me is when that electric connection happens from the stage to the audience. And you asked me earlier why coffee houses, that almost always happens in a coffee house setting. I love seeing music in a, in a small intimate coffee house setting or a, so I just last week I was writing our weekly newsletter and right, right as I was writing it, emails came in. I looked and, oh, Paul McCartney's playing in Spokane. Oh, I think I'd like to see Paul McCartney. And, you know, he's 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 opening his national tour in, in Spokane. That's the first night and then two nights in Seattle. And I'm like, I think I'd rather drive to Spokane than to Seattle. It's just, you know, it's about we're right in the middle. So it's like, we'll go to Spokane. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's not going to be, it's going to be a, hockey rink mm. you know and nothing against hockey nothing against but i can you imagine sitting seeing paul mccartney play in a coffee house you know you imagine, it, you know what i mean just yeah how it, there's nothing complete, there's nothing like it i mean for me the closest yeah. thing i've had to that was i had the great fortune of seeing bruce springsteen when he was on broadway in this you know, oh, 700 wow. person wow. venue okay. and it, the, the intimacy of that moment, I, wow. I will always take with me because I mean, it right. was just, I, I feel, I mean, his, his, his lyricism, his musicianship, his storytelling ability, mm-hmm. 
just all came, you know, to a head in that, uh, in the, you know, in that way. And, and we as an audience, I mean, there was an electricity between Springsteen and every, I'm sure, every single one of us, you know, mm-hmm. who had the good fortune of being in that space oh, that'd been, with that'd him. That would have been amazing to see. And yeah. if I could see Paul McCartney that way, particularly after um, watching the documentary Get Back, mm-hmm. I feel, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that, Scott. I did. I watched it. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it opened um, my mind to who the Beatles were in ways that I just never imagined. And to him as an incredibly, you know, once in a lifetime, really um, gifted musician and lyricist yeah i had two quick observations about watching that well, number one was i applaud him because the, the the show didn't put him in the best light yeah that, that he was comfortable enough uh, you know think that he and ringo were the producers of this that they had fine you know we'll say they could cut out things that weren't flattering but that didn't put paul in a particularly flattering light all the that's time, right in my opinion yeah he was kind of a he was bossy, he, you know, yeah, and boss, he was dismissive of George Harrison. And you could understand Absolutely. the creative tension because Harrison wants to be heard. Mm-hmm. And, and McCartney isn't listening to him. Right. Then the other takeaway was, is they were working on Get Back. Mm-hmm. Something that, you know, I've heard for well, how old is that song? Fifty years now. No? <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, it's a it's a staple of FM radio and total. You know, everybody you know, everybody knows Get Back, mm-hmm. right? Could you imagine being in London when they're playing on the rooftop <laughs> and hearing that song for the first time, not knowing it's going to be a global <laughs> phenomenon, but like, well, I don't know if I like this song. I'm not sure what to think. I just it was just. I was watching this going, do they have any clue what that was going to be? Yeah. <laughs> and it was just, anyway, it's just, I want to, I, I need to respect your time and I could keep talking to you for quite some time, but I will, I'll use my I, I standard line. I say this every show, but you know, what didn't I ask you that I should have? What didn't we cover that we should have covered? Let me think. You're closing arguments. Yeah, let if me you will. let me think about that. <laughs> you know, I you know, I think uh the the only thing we didn't, you know, explicitly uh cover that you know, I would I'm I I want to put out there is you know, I actually think our best days are yet to come as as Paula Bog's band and and me as an artist, I have learned so much about myself and and my art um, mm-hmm. in these past couple years. You know, during these COVID times, and um, and I'm really quite hopeful, uh, not just about our music, but the hope in our music is a byproduct of the hope I feel 
about our future. Um, you know, we get a lot of negative um, feedback about who we are and how we get along and and all of those things and, you know, doomed to the United States and whatnot. And I don't buy into it. I, I think when I look at um, not just the music community, but my community writ large, I see a lot of people caring for each other and looking out for each other and, you know, just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And that, that's the sort of, that's the, the America I want to be part of. I want our music, uh, to be informed by that. And, and I don't think it's a fairy tale, Scott. So I, I, I want to leave your, your listeners with, with that. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. But we're not going to leave with that because you're going to tell them where they can find your music and find out more about you. That's that'll be closing notes, and we'll put these in your show in our show notes too. But where where can people find out more about you? Find out more about your band? Listen to your music. Yes, I would. I would happily and and aggressively <laughs> urge your <laughs> listeners uh, to check out paulabogsband.net. Uh, we're all over social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you know, the list is long YouTube. Um, we're, we're on all those platforms, Spotify, Apple music, of course. And so please check us out, listen to our music. If you like it, please comment on it and, you know, and follow us. There we go. Paula, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to be, be here. I've enjoyed a lot of I, this has been wonderful. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Scott. And thanks to your listeners. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.